We're going to read all of John chapter 6, all 71 verses. So right away, you know we're not going to deal with everything in the chapter in great detail, right? Um, Especially in John's gospel, there are several times where John records a miracle of Jesus and a message of Jesus, and those two things correspond to one another. They're interrelated. And on this occasion, in John 6, we'll see that the miracle is the feeding of more than 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. And then the message that goes along with it is what we call the bread of life sermon. And so I want you to see how these two are related and then use it to particularly focus in on what Jesus says in verses 44 and 45. But to keep the whole thing in context as John wrote it, I want to read all of chapter 6. All right? Starting at verse 1. <clears throat> and these, after these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. And Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes, he saw a great company come unto him. He saith unto Philip, When shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, or to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, Two hundred pennyworth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said unto him, There is a lad here which has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in that place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000 and Jesus took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples and the disciples to them which were set down and likewise the fishes as much as they would. When they were filled, he said unto his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, this is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into the mountain himself alone. And when even was now come, his disciples went down into the sea and entered into a ship and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was now dark and Jesus was not come to them. And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. And when they had rowed about five and 20 or 30 furlongs, they see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing nigh unto the ship. And they were afraid. But he saith unto them, It is I, be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. The day following, when the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was none other boat there, save the one whereunto his disciples were entered, 
And that Jesus went not with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples were gone away alone. Howbeit there came other boats from Tiberias nigh unto the place where they did eat bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perishes, but for that meat which endures unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him has God the Father sealed. And they said unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou thou then, that we may see and believe thee? What What dost thou work? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which comes down from heaven and gives life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that you also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has, which has sent me, that of all that he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which sees the Son and believes on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then murmured at him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose mother and father we know? How is it that he says, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the father which has sent me draw him and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught of God. Every man therefore that has heard and has learned of the Father, comes unto me. Not that any man has seen the Father, save he which is of God, he has seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believes on me has everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. 
The Jews, therefore, strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoso eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eats my flesh and drinks my blood dwells in me and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eats me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eats of this bread shall live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Does this offend you? What and if you shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? It's the spirit that quickens. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will you also go away? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that you are that Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was who should betray him, being one of the twelve. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the word that you have given through your Uh, beloved Apostle John, and that you have preserved for us to read this morning. And we ask, Lord, that you would bless the reading of it, that you would give us some understanding of it, that we would see that you are the uh, God who draws with your grace those who will come to believe and have salvation in the Lord Jesus. We ask, Lord, that you would please uh, be with our assembly, that you would give us a desire to serve you and to bring you honor and glory in all things. Please forgive me of my sins, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Verses 44 and 45, Jesus says, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. As it's written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Every man, therefore, that has heard and has learned of the Father comes unto me. Those are beautiful words from the Savior, and yet they are words that draw some to him in love and even today repels others who refuse to accept the truth of God's sovereignty and salvation. Would it surprise you 
given, given everything we just read, that some of the purpose of what Jesus is saying here is to do that exact thing. Drawing some and yet at the same time repelling others is exactly the words that Jesus intends to speak. The true message of God always does that. When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he compared it to a smell. And he said, to some, it is the smell of life that leads to life. And to some, it's the smell of death that leads to death, right? Uh, to understand this sort of drawing and, and repelling nature of truth, let's just keep this chapter in its context. So it begins up in northern Israel along the Sea of Galilee, Jesus often walked with his disciples in and around the city of Capernaum, which was sort of a, a headquarters for his ministry up in northern Israel, the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And we see in, in John 6, as it starts, John says that he went over the Sea of Galilee. Now, he doesn't say specifically where. He could have gone to, to any other uh, shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. But we get a hint of where he's gone in verse 3 when it says Jesus goes up into a mountain with his disciples. The mountainous or hilly region to the, the east side, sorry, east side for you guys, to the east side of the Sea of Galilee is almost certainly where Jesus went. John also adds in verse 4 that Passover was approaching. So faithful Jews from northern Israel would actually travel down that, that eastern side of the Sea of Galilee in order to travel to Jerusalem because they didn't want to go directly south and go through Samaria. I mention this because if you're familiar with the popular TV series about Jesus' ministry right now, they tell this story as if it is filled with a groups of Gentiles, and it just can't be right not to say that there were no Gentiles here. But this is a distinctly Jewish audience. They followed him, verse 2 says, from Capernaum. In verse 4, we see they're Passover travelers. In verse 15, they want to make Jesus king. They're arguing with Jesus about, in verse 31, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. They are even labeled in verse 41 as Jews. So I want you to imagine that small group of Jesus' disciples having been joined up at Capernaum by, by several thousand others walking along to this eastern coastline uh, of the, the Sea of Galilee, right? And after hours of, of teaching, Jesus can see these people and they're, they're far from their homes and in, they're in practical need of physical food in addition to the spiritual food that they had been hearing. But Jesus' little church did not have money to operate like a, a mobile food pantry. And so the Apostle Philip understands the problem in, in verse 7. 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for him that everyone would take a little. Literally, he's talking about denarii there instead of penny worth. The idea is a denarii is a day's wage. So I don't know how much money was available to the disciples, but let's say they had 200 denarii. And, and Philip's looking at it and saying, look, I, I can calculate this pretty quick. We ain't got enough. Even if we could spend all this and buy what's possible, if there were some merchants around here, it still wouldn't even give everybody just a little bit. And so some young man, either out of 
naivety or faith or a little bit of both, steps forward to one of Jesus' apostles and offers five barley loaves and two fish. So picture five tiny little biscuits, almost cracker-like, and a couple of sardine-sized fish. That apostle, Andrew, seems to sort of grudgingly pass that offer on to Jesus, along with his own commentary in verse 9. What what is this going to do among so many? Well, in the loving hands of the creator of the world who spoke the universe into existence out of nothing, having something is more than enough. Now, five little loaves and two fish are going to feed upwards of 5,000 people. And really, we're not going to talk so much about that miracle this morning, but verse 10 says that there were 5,000 men. In Matthew's account of this, he expressly says that 5,000 number did not include women and children. There's no real way of estimating how many people Jesus fed with five loaves and two fish, but it's definitely upward of 5,000 and probably upward of 10,000. In the hands of Jesus, that little boy's snack would turn into a feast for thousands. And perhaps more importantly, it became the basis for one of the greatest sermons ever preached. Jesus turns those loaves and fish into an example of mankind's natural desire, which, he can, only, which it can only be overcome by the irresistible grace of God. So it takes a little while for that teaching to, be, to, to unfold. After the meal, the disciples gather up 12 baskets of leftover food. Please don't picture huge bushel baskets, right? This is probably little individual-sized baskets. Think more of lunch pail-sized baskets. Such is the perfect way of Jesus. He says, look, we don't want this to be wasteful. And so then he descends the disciples into the boat by themselves. And so, you know, each of them, there's, there's 12 of them, right? Each of them has some actual food for eating and also some food for thought based on what they've just seen. And they're going over the sea and he himself goes off nearby into a hillside alone, it says in verse 15, to avoid the selfish intentions of the crowd. Verse 15 says, Jesus perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him into a king. And so he departed into a mountain himself alone. It wasn't time for him to be declared king of an earthly kingdom. It's certainly not the will of God that such a group of men would forcefully cause Jesus to make that declaration. Jesus understood the pleasure of having food provided would cause these men to seek him for all of their physical needs and thereby ignore their spiritual needs in the process. Listen, both then and now, Jesus has no interest in fueling greed that causes some folks to claim that, you know, godliness is found in accumulating temporal blessings, right? That physical blessings are, are owed to all of those who claim faith in Jesus. And so he wants no part of that. He leaves. The next morning, the crowd wakes up. Jesus is gone. In the nighttime, he has 
come down from the mountain. He has walked on water to join the disciples. They get into, he gets into the boat and it is instantly, John describes, you know, they don't have to row the rest of the way. Jesus gets on the boat and it is instantly at the destination, back up at Capernaum. Verses 22 and 23 describe the crowd's puzzlement as they see, look, the only boat that's missing here is the one from the disciples and nobody knows where Jesus is around here. We know we saw the disciples leave by themselves. Where did he go? And so they try to figure it out. They search the hillsides. No doubt they also borrow or rent some other boats that have come in the night to go toward Capernaum. And they eventually find him near Capernaum again. And they ask him, when did you come here? And you almost know that what they're thinking is, why why did you leave? Right? You're surrounded by people who love you because you just fed us all. Although you and I know that that's not really what has happened. They don't love Jesus. They're just, they're ready to name and claim breakfast. In verse 25, Jesus answered and says, Verily, verily, I said to you, you seek me, not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Jesus, in the way only he can do, looked through the facade of human hypocrisy and exposed the truth of their hearts. Ultimately, what drew those men to Jesus was nothing spiritual. They were uninterested in miracles. They were uninterested in the truth. They were uninterested in his teaching. They only wanted Jesus the meal ticket. How little has changed now when there were some who would embrace the name of Jesus in order to use it as a tool for their selfish desires. And what follows then in John 6 is the bread of life sermon. And we can't even dig into that in all of its details. I will say one of the most difficult portions of the Bread of Life sermon as we've read it is Jesus saying, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood because my flesh is meat. It's food, real food. And it is real drink in my blood. What he was saying is Jesus has to become part of you. It has to, he has to fill your being. He has to be the essence of what is provided to sustain your life. Later on, as it has been offensive to some, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, what I'm speaking to you is spirit. The words that I speak are spiritual words. But the crowd can't get past the the idea that he's, you know, teaching them cannibalism. It starts when Jesus gets compared essentially to Moses. The crowd asks him to do what Moses did, right? Provide manna like Moses provided manna in the wilderness. Verses 30 and 31, they said to him, what sign do you show then that we may see and believe you? What do you work? (laughs) They had just seen him feed many thousands with One little boy's lunch. That wasn't enough for them to see? They say, our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Like, hey, you remember Moses back there in the wilderness? They didn't just get fed one time, right? 
here we are for breakfast. What are you going to do to show us who you are again? If you want to lead us, you have to be like Moses. Moses gave our forefathers bread in the desert. But Jesus insists, look, the way you're thinking about that story is wrong. Moses didn't give them manna. God did. Look at verse 32. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which comes down from heaven and gives life unto the world. And in their ignorance, the crowd says in verse 34, give us this bread. They even say evermore. Do it always, right? From now on, we want you to give us this bread. And at that very moment, standing there on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee near Capernaum, God had provided them the bread of life in the person of Jesus. And they're standing there saying, I wish we had breakfast. It's about time. Verse 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me will never hunger, and he that believes on me will never thirst. Now, so that, we, now that we've sort of reviewed the context, when you see the purpose of Jesus later on in this chapter is to both draw some and to repel others. You can see why he would want to push some of these away. I have little doubt that among this multitude, there were some who were saved. How could you, how could thousands hear the bread of life sermon and it not affect them? But within that sermon is that very distinct message of drawing and repelling. Look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. And him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. This is what they want. They want food. Jesus says, you need to come to me to be provided for. The majority of the people who were listening to him were so focused on what Jesus had done and what he could do for their physical needs that they had no vision of their spiritual needs. And that in kind of intention that is against the, the manifest will of God, that has to be pushed away. Even some who proclaim faith in Jesus were repelled by this magnificent yet difficult message. To see them being repelled, look at, look at our text again in verse 44. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. As it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Every man therefore that has heard and has learned of the Father comes unto me. From that time, listen to this, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. How do we account for, for these kind of varying responses to the same message? That some hear the message and they, they cling to him and others hear it and they just walk away from him. I think the key is actually in the message itself. Jesus' bread of life sermon teaches indisputably that the grace which God determines to reveal to his chosen people will accomplish his intended ends. Grace is irresistible and effectual for those 
who are the elect that God has chosen. Listen to how Jesus explains it. Start at verse 36. But I said unto you that you have seen me and believe not. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. And him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which sees the Son and believes on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Why did some see Jesus and hear this message and still just walk away? Well, Jesus' own description is they saw and they did not believe in verse 36. They came to Jesus for physical food, but they wouldn't come to him for spiritual life. They have no interest in that. And yet Jesus also describes a group of people who are, as he pictures it, a love gift from the Father to the Son. And within that group, there is no question of what they will do. There's no question of what will become of them. He says that everyone the Father gives the Son. Verse 37, they come to the Son. They won't be pushed away or rejected by the Son. Verse 39, they won't be lost by the Son. In verse 40, those are the ones who will see and believe in the Son. All of those are the ones who will be raised up at the last day. Such clear teaching about the sovereignty of God was received in that day, sort of similarly to the way it's seen this day. Verses 41 and 42, most of the men listening were incredulous that Jesus would say this. Their response is, well, isn't this the carpenter's kid? (laughs) No, it's not. Why does he say that he came down from heaven? We know his mother and father. Well, you're half right. You clearly don't know his father. And he says he came down from heaven because that's exactly what he's done. And met with such bickering and murmuring and complaining, Jesus first insists in verse 43 that they stop. And it's kind of interesting to me that they insist we want you to be like Moses And they start mistreating him exactly the way the Jews in the wilderness mistreated Moses, right? They they murmured and complained. And Jesus tells them, you got to stop. In fact, just as as a what if, if the pattern of the Old Testament wilderness shows us anything, if it informs us of their attitude, even if Jesus did give them breakfast and they stayed around and got lunch and they stayed around and got dinner, if Jesus provided them constant food like they got from manna in the wilderness, what's their eventual reaction going to be? We're sick of barley, loaves, and fish. That was the complaint with manna in the wilderness, right? You're receiving miraculous food out here in the desert where you have nothing. And they're like, we're really tired of it, man. And he goes on to make, which is what is one of the most direct, most clear, most eloquent statements on irresistible grace contained in all of Scripture. Verses 44 and 45. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. As it's written in the prophets, 
And they all, they'll all be taught of God. Every man, therefore, that has heard and has learned of the Father comes unto me. Listen, they had come to him across the sea, but they hadn't come to him in faith. They'd been drawn by their own fleshly desires. They'd not been drawn by the Father. They'd come with the intention of what did, what did they want to do with Jesus? They wanted to exert their will on him, right? We will take him by force if we have to and make him to be king because we like that free dinner. Yet this case shows that God is able to resist the will of man, but man is not able to resist the will of God. Here's the case for irresistible grace. If there was no such thing as irresistible grace, no man would be saved because Jesus says we have a complete and utter inability to come to him, to have faith in him. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draws him. The word for can in verse 44 is the Greek word dunamai. It's where we get the English word dynamite from. The, it, it speaks of the idea of, of power or ability. No man, Jesus says, has the power. No man has the ability to bring himself, to come to Jesus without being drawn by the Father. And some would say, well, well that's true, but the Father draws everybody. The drawing of God is simply the, the offer of salvation that is to be made to all men. And some of them resist that. Well, obviously that's not what Jesus believes. He spoke in verse 37 of all that the Father gives me will come to me. And now he says nobody will come to me unless the Father which sent me draws him. But does that mean then that God the Father drags people kicking and screaming to faith in Jesus. Well, let's examine that word draw for a minute and see what God actually does. The word there, in, in Greek, it's the word helkuo, and it's used other times in the New Testament in, in sort of three different ways, and I want to give you all of them. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are arrested and dragged, helkuo, to the marketplace to be put on trial. The same word is used to describe when Peter draws his sword out of, his, out of its sheath in order to smite the, the servant of the high priest in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the same word that the Gospels uses for fishermen pulling in their nets. It's not the idea of an offer being made. You can't imagine some scenario in which Peter or other fishermen threw the net overboard along with the invitation that the fish would be welcome to come aboard if they want to. Those poor fish, I mean, even if every head was bowed and eyes closed, they don't have a hand to raise and they can't walk leglessly down the aisle to repeat a prayer. When Jesus uses this word draw, he's speaking, it, it's, it describes the kind of outside force that is exerted on an object in order to secure the desired result. So the disciples did not stop dragging in the fishing net until the fish were on the boat. 
Peter's sword didn't come halfway out of the sheath and then fall back in again. It came all the way out because he exerted the amount of force that was needed to accomplish what he intended. They didn't arrest Paul and Silas and drag them halfway to the town square and say, now we've done all we can do. The rest is up to you. We did our part, now you do your part, right? The, the force exerted is enough to secure the desired result. When God draws a sinner center to faith in Jesus Christ, he uses the appropriate amount of drawing so that the desired result is accomplished. Now we can look at that in a lot of ways. Does, does that mean God draws them kicking and screaming to Jesus? No, where they had been unwilling, he does a work in the heart that makes them willing. They fight tooth and nail to, to hold on to their sin and never let it go. No, he gives them a real sense of their sin and they then have a desire to let it go. The evidence we see through the conversions of the New Testament is that God brings dead sinners to life. He opens closed hearts. He gives this desire for Jesus so that even as he irresistibly draws those that he would give to Jesus, they also most freely and willingly come to the Savior of their souls. The irresistible grace of God, the expression of the, along with the expression of like the human heart and, and will and desire to be saved, those things are not in conflict with each other and don't let anyone convince you that they are in conflict with each other. God's intervention in our hearts is what creates our heart's desire to have Christ as Savior. And we willingly and freely come to him in faith. When Charles Spurgeon was once asked, you know, well, how is it that you reconcile divine sovereignty with human responsibility? He's famously said, I, I don't. You don't have to reconcile friends together. They're not in conflict with each other. They're not opposed to one another. Biblically, it is evident that you are responsible to repent of your sins and trust Jesus for salvation. But it's also evident that it is the active working of God that is the only power which can create that desire within us. Coming to Jesus requires the active working of a force outside of us. It, requ it requires, in the words of Jesus, that the Father which has sent me draws them. You have to be drawn, Jesus says. And this is not drawing that happens to all people. Verse 45 makes it evident that such a drawing from God only occurs for some. It's so for those who have not only heard, Jesus says, because they've all heard, but you have to learn of the Father. That is, learn from the Father so that you embrace what you've heard. I mean, you can note in this chapter, everyone Jesus is talking to had heard, right? I mean, they'd eat the loaves and fish. They'd, they'd heard the message, this bread of life sermon that Jesus is preaching. All of them had heard. It would, it would do us good to remember that example. Don't ever use the truth of God's sovereignty as an excuse. Make sure people hear about Jesus, but then also pray for the drawing work of God because they're not going to come to faith in him without that. Within the Bread of Life sermon, there was a lot that these men found offensive. 
But the concept of the irresistible grace of God was so offensive to them that Jesus actually circles back around to that topic later on as he's teaching his disciples and sort of driving this sermon home. And if anything, at the end, Jesus strengthens this argument in his message even more by showing it's the active work of God must come before a man will have faith in God. Look at verse 63. It's the spirit that quickens. The flesh profits nothing. And you know in that part, Jesus is talking about that whole, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. He said, look, this is a, it's a spiritual lesson. Flesh, if you literally did that, it's not going to do you any good. It's the spirit that makes alive. It's the spirit that quickens. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believe not and who should betray him. And he said, therefore, that's why I said to you that no man can come to me except it were given unto him of my father. What is the determining factor for those who come to Jesus in genuine faith? Jesus says, it's the spirit that brings life. We call that being born again. It's that life that leads to faith. And that faith is only found in those, Jesus says, to whom it is given of the Father. In fairness, this message of God's irresistible grace was not new. Jesus did not invent this on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It could be seen in Old Testament types and in Old Testament prophecies and in the clear teaching of the men of God. Just for an example, Jeremiah shows this irresistible grace as the very expression of God's love in Jeremiah 31.3, the Lord has appeared of old to me saying, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. But this is not a message that was easily accepted by the natural man. In fact, in many ways, it seems Jesus' purpose is to use this message to both draw some and to push others away. Immediately after, circling back around to this point in his Bread of Life sermon, we see that it, is, it proves to be an effective repellent as well as an effectual calling. Look at verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with them. That's not saying that a lot of those people who had just been hanging around Jesus to see miracles and have meals didn't follow him anymore. People who proclaimed Jesus as their rabbi, they wanted to be his disciple. They didn't want to be his disciple after this. And still today, there are some who proclaim faith in Jesus and in fact may be his disciples who so struggle with this doctrine of irresistible grace that it proves sort of a, a, a natural repellent to our natural desires. But I would urge you to not be one of them. If you've not embraced the truth of God's sovereign, irresistible grace, I ask you to just remember the sad figures of those who turned from Jesus and walked away from him. And remember also in verse 67, his question to the ones that remain. Are you going to go away also? 
Are you drawn by the truth of God's grace or are you pushed away by the truth of God's grace? Do you find it appealing or do you find it repelling? Here's the beauty of this message of Jesus. We can pray for the salvation of the lost because God is entirely capable to accomplish that salvation. Every sinner saved by God's grace experiences salvation because they were given by the will of God the Father. They were bought by the sacrifice of God the Son. They're secured by the working of God the Holy Spirit. When we pray and ask God to save a sinner, we're praying to the God who is entirely and only able to accomplish what we're asking. If I didn't believe in the irresistible grace of God, I would expect when I pray for God to save a sinner, I might get the response back, I've done all that I can do. Now it's up to them. What are you asking me for? We don't worship a God who has done all that he can do. We worship a God who has sent his son Jesus to do everything that needed to be done. He's come to do the will of the Father, he says. He tells us that the Father's will is to draw some sinners as a love gift from the Father to the Son. And it's the Father's will that not one of those who the Father gives the Son would ever be lost. And so the Almighty God changes their hearts so that he effectively draws sinners to faith in Jesus. And they also freely and willingly come to the Savior of their souls. 